Would you want to just move swiftly in and, um, and have a talk about the bell? So thanks so much for coming down. Thank you for inviting me. Where should we begin? Let's talk about you to begin with. Let's, um, what sort of prompted your first sort of interest in Iris's work? Okay, it wasn't actually at university that I started reading her. It was when I was 13. And I didn't start with the bell, although I think it's a very good place to start reading Iris Murdoch. I started with the unicorn. It was my dad who suddenly gave it to me one day and said, I think you might rather like this. And I just absolutely fell in love with this sort of golden whiskey glow. I don't know if any of you have read The Unicorn. It's really gothic. It's a strange um, Murdoch novel. Even for her, it's quite unusual. Uh, very isolated, very dramatic, full of violence and sex and all sorts of exciting things. And I just loved it. And I read her and read her and read her. And in fact, when I was doing English at Oxford back in the Dark Ages, you weren't allowed to do a living author at all. They had to be dead to count. So she never got contaminated by exams or anything. And I just went on and on reading her. And I read each of the novels as they came out. Obviously, some of them had been written before I was born, but as the new ones came out, up to Jackson's Dilemma. And I bought Jackson's Dilemma and read it. By then, I was actually buying them in hardback, not even waiting for the paperback. And I thought, something's gone terribly wrong. Whatever's happened here? It was a really odd feeling of a skeletal quality. It wasn't a big, rich, baggy monster like the previous ones. There were repetitions, there were mistakes. There, it was a very curious experience. And then John Bailey announced, I think in the um, Telegraph or the mm -hmm. Times or the Times Supplement, that Iris had Alzheimer's. And one realised what had happened with this last book, and you knew it was going to be the last book as well, which was quite devastating. I thought, well, I'll never, ever be able now to go and have that conversation with her that I've always dreamt of having about her novels and how much I love them. So I went to Oxford, and very cornerly, in the covered market in Oxford, I bought a huge armful of irises, and I went up to Childbury Road, and I thought I'd just give them to John Bailey or somebody who was looking after her and say they were for her. But she actually opened the door herself, and she held my hand. She had a really warm hand. She held my hand in both hers, and she really smiled at me and looked into my eyes and smiled at me and thanked me for the flowers. And I'm sure the moment I hadn't reached the gate before she dropped them in the dust behind the front door and they were forgotten. But it was quite magical just being in her presence just for one moment. And as Miles said, I did my PhD at Kingston because I was actually living in Ireland, gardening, looking after two small children. And Anne Rowe, who was here last week as well, who was the instigator of the original Iris Murdoch Studies Centre at Kingston, found me out there through an appeal she was making for the library and said, what are you doing reading Iris Murdoch out in the bog in Ireland? It's quite a good place to read Murdoch, actually. It's more or less, I lived more or less where the unicorn was set. And she said, um, come and be our first PhD student at the new centre. I said, well, I can't possibly. I'm much too old and I've got these children and I'm gardening. And she said, oh, you can do it long term, long distance, you know, part time. And she, Anne's very alluring. She reeled me in gradually on her fishing line until I ended up doing it and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And met Mars about a decade ago, going mm -hmm. to different conferences and things when you were still doing your PhD as well. And have met and made friends all around the world. That's been the marvellous thing. Been to all sorts of places. <coughs> Italy, Portugal, Turkey, that I would never have gone otherwise to go to conferences and meet other people. And it's, it's marvellous being with other Iris Murdoch readers. Because it's like being with a family. Because there's so many characters in all her books. And if you're with those people, you can just start talking about Jenkin or about Dora or something, and they know exactly who you mean, whereas most people regard you as a bit odd, basically. So that's how I came to be involved. Literary societies can be like that, can't <laughs> yes. What is it in her early period that we're thinking about today that is, do you think most attractive? I know, well, obviously, we've both reread The Bell recently. Mm. 
And so we both read it how many times? I, I, I probably read it five or six times. You yes. probably read it more than that. I couldn't count. Yes. Yeah. And yet, when I read it's so it fresh, now, it? It, I was halfway down the first page and I was caught again. She has the absolute storyteller's gift mm. of plot, of, of <laughs> making you want to keep turning the pages to know what happens next. And that's the bottom line, I think, with her. And it's something that you can forget when you're looking at her as a very literary figure or looking at the philosophy, is that she's just a really good storyteller in, in the Dickensian sort of vein. I mean, she says this is her lucky novel as well. That everything, that the first three novels, first two dealing with all sort of existentialist concerns, third novel, we might say it's not quite at that level. It's a little bit too romantic and, and sort of pastoral. But the, the, the bell, it, it comes together, doesn't it? I think it's that the movement from the urban setting at the beginning into the rural, and then the and then this action. So certainly in the first, in the first chapter, well, that's all. That's when it, it, it hooks you. Would you agree? Absolutely. And the very first opening line, you know, Dora left her husband because she was afraid. From six months later, she returned him for the same reason. Yeah. There's a wonderful balance in that, and you're intrigued immediately. Why? Why is she afraid of him? You know, what's going to happen? Is this going to work? And so even in one sentence, you've, you've got the beginning of a movement forward. Absolutely. And I love the structure of the bell. It's, it's very carefully, cleverly structured. Mm. Indeed, on, on the Moodle page, we've just, I've just put it up this morning, um, so that you do actually involve yourself with the novel. We put a chapter-by-chapter chapter synopsis up. I do have some, I printed out some spares as well. But for those of you who want to write on the bell, um, it's a really good aid memoir, I think, to get back into it. I've given out a few to students um, in, the third, in the third year and on the MA as well. But I think, um, do, do have a look at that. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's really useful. Thank you for thank you for uh, producing that for us. I think it's uh, a useful thing. What do, what do you think are the main sort of areas that we ought to be thinking about about the bell? With the bell, you can approach it from a lot of different angles, obviously. And one of the things that, as a piece of literature, I would want you to think about is how it's told how this narrative is told. Murdoch wrote six of her novels in the first person, always as a man, in fact, from the first under the net up to, I suppose, the last of the CDC of the first person male, unreliable male narrators. But this one isn't. It's third person in personal narration, but you're inside the heads of certain characters and not inside the heads of others. And I think that has a, a distinct effect on our interpretation of the story and the way she's putting it across. So technically, it's an interesting novel from the point of view of narration. But also, it does encapsulate an awful lot of her, the issues that she um, brings up in, in all her novels and in her philosophy, indeed. The kind of issues that she tackles here are how to know yourself, what kinds of things go on in the inner life, inside yourself and that's a question that at the time she was writing this philosophy was saying is unaskable wasn't it mm -hmm. and you can't know about that and it's 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 out of court they just said it's, it's something we can't discuss and more or less denied that we have an inner life and Murdoch very unfashionably and very tenaciously stuck to the idea that we do have an inner life and that's where our not just our feeling and our thinking but where our decision-making grows and it's knowing ourselves. And she explores this in the novels. You watch the characters in their lives developing and going well or going badly and their choices being well-made or, or ill-made. 
She's also asking, it's a bit of an existential question still, how <laughs> free are we? Mm. And if we're not, why not? What forces are we governed by? And two of her big fears, really, or things that she's against, are relativism and determinism, which she sees as a way of abrogating responsibility, denying responsibility. I, I couldn't help it, you know, it was determined by my circumstances, my genes, my poor upbringing, my whatever. I was forced into doing this. I don't have to take responsibility for my choices because I couldn't have done any otherwise. And she says, no, we're, we always are, always are responsible in the end. We do have choices. We make them ill or badly, but we need to take responsibility for them. And she wants to know how human choices are made. I'm not a philosopher, so Mars could say more about this, but there was a sense at that time that the only way you could see what choices had been made were by the action. You see what somebody does. And she wants to go far, far back than that and say, you know, what, how do we make our choices? What are the influences on us that, that make us choose the way we do? Do we operate on reason? Are we rational? Are we always making the choice, thinking clearly through steps? Or are we just random impulses suddenly? Or are we governed by obsessions that rule our choice making? She's asking that. And the que another question that she asks in all her novels is how do we deal with terrible suffering? How do we deal with guilt, with grief, with remorse, with the things that we've done in our lives that we can't undo, that we regret, that we're ashamed of, that have had bad consequences? And she frequently, not so much in The Bell, but she frequently sets up a situation whereby um, you start at the beginning of the novel with a character who's done something awful. And how are they going to live with themselves throughout that? And this, this, I, I actually wrote my thesis on remorse, because in the last novel, Jackson's Dilemma, she says remorse, was this the very concept that sounded the bell? And that phrase remorse comes through that novel like a mantra. And I started reading backwards instead of forwards. And I read back to the beginning, the 26 novels, and saw remorse getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And she's really looking at that a lot. How do we live with that? And particularly because she sees the um, meta-narratives. Is that a term you'd be familiar with? It's, it's Leotard. Meta-narratives are, are, are sort of big governing frameworks by which we understand our world. Things like Christianity, Marxism, um, evolution, Darwinism. The way, that, the way that we interpret life, the way it makes sense to us. In the second half of the 20th century, she's living at a time when this is breaking down. She was a communist at, at Oxford. She joined the Communist Party and stayed in until her early 20s. It's why she didn't go to America. She, she should have gone to America. She got a place at Vassar University. And then they asked her if she had been ever a member of the Communist Party. And most people by then would just say no and gone to America. But she didn't tell lies. So she ticked yes, whereupon they said, well, you can't come then. So... We would have had a very different Iris Murdoch, I think, if she'd gone to America Absolutely. at that stage. I think it's actually a blessing that she probably didn't at that stage in her career. I think it would just been so different. She yeah, would have married John Bailey, she might have known Hannah Arendt. You know, it would have been <laughs> so, so different. It's, mm. it's unthinkable, really, how <laughs> she would have developed. I've gone off key now with going to America. Where was I? Meta-narratives. Uh, <laughs> the me thank you. The meta-narratives, yeah. They're breaking down. 
she sees that Marxism, communism won't do, it's a nice idea, but it's not working. By then they knew about the excesses of Stalin. It's, it's not actually happening in the way that they hoped it would, perhaps naively, earlier in the century. Christianity is breaking down. Religion altogether is breaking down. And Murdoch's very afraid of this. How are we going to live? She doesn't believe in God. She, didn't, she was an atheist. She did not believe in God or in the divinity of Christ, although she thought Christ was a very potent, strong, powerful figure that we needed to hold on to in an iconic way. But how are we going to live? How is goodness and value, ethical value at all, going to survive if we lose the religious framework that has underpinned it for so long? And I think it's a question that's still with us today. It's going on into the 21st century as well. What, what are you basing value on if there's nothing outside the world, as it were, which we can look to? And for not all, but many people, this is, this is a significant loss. And certainly for her it was. And she's very much looking at this in the bell. You've got these people who are on the edge of the church, on the edge of the world. Um, I think it's Ananias in the best book of all. If you read one book about Iris Murdoch, if you want to know about her whole life and work, it's Priscilla Martin and Anne Rowe's Literary Life. And that takes you through the whole life and the whole, um, every novel, in the most clear, clear, lucid way. And it's a copy of Good. It's <laughs> And they talk about the bell, and um, they've got a lovely phrase, which I probably can't remember offhand. Religious liminality pervades the novel. Liminality, on the sill, on the cusp of something, between not quite in one place or the other, on the edge. And it, it's, a, it's a powerful concept, this liminality, between two worlds there. And the bell is a very good example of her looking at that. She also as well as the spirit, matters of the spirit, she's very interested in sex, and she knows how powerful sex is in human life, how it makes us obsessional, jealous, do things, create problems, hurt ourselves, hurt others. <coughs> Hugely, um, potentially wonderful, of course, and potentially very enriching, but also potentially very damaging aspect of human life. And she looks in many of her novels at what are the dangers of overwhelming sexual obsession. And she's interested in this because it's the point at which we're most morally vulnerable, probably. You know, those kind of areas are where people get themselves into a lot of trouble, as, of course, Michael does in The Bell. But others of her characters do in other novels, too. She looks at the nature of the conflict between the physical world and the spiritual world, the day-to-day, the, -day, the aspirations, the the things that we can't quite get a grip on, and yet we're conscious of and she wants to know how we define good and evil what do the words really mean she asked she says at one point a very interesting question to ask of a philosopher is what is he afraid of and this was asked of her by brian mcgee i think mm -hmm. what are you afraid of and she said it would be to find that there is no difference between good and evil they don't matter uh, which would be a very nietzschean perspective to be beyond good and evil and she she finds that a terrifying thought that morality doesn't really exist it doesn't matter how we act She's always asking, what would a good person be like? She tries to create good characters, and this is quite difficult. I mean, famously, it's more easily, more easy in literature or in theatre or whatever to create a, a, a villain. You, you, you get fascinating villains. Bad people are fascinating. Good people can be quite invisible, quite dull, and to create an interesting good character is a difficult thing to do. And she tries again and again throughout her novels. I think she's very successful in some of them. There's a late novel called The Book of the Brotherhood, which has a character in called Jenkin Riderhood. Uh, I think he's one of the most good people in the whole of English literature. And he's almost invisible. 
And she said once that her chief subject, the thing she was most exercised about and that she was most expert on, is love. That is what... The significance of love in our lives and in the moral life is her chief concern, her central concern, around which she circles. But when she says love, it's a very specific understanding. I mean, love can be differently understood as eros, agape, caritas, all the different forms of love that we have for each other in different ways, for close family members, sexual love, charitable love, kindness, friendship. There are, there are many forms. But she's seeing it in a very, very specific way. And she says, love is the realization of the reality of the other, the fact that other people really exist. It's the attention to the reality of the other. And this is a concept, attention, that she gets from the French spirit, um, Christian mystic writer, Simone Weil, who writes a lot about attention as well. And she says quite consciously that she borrows this concept from Weil, and she defines it very clearly in a lot of her philosophy, and then she shows it in a lot of her novels, or she shows the lack of it. Things go wrong because people don't love in terms of paying attention. And it's sort of like this, that we're naturally egocentric. She sees the ego as the, the what is it? she calls the fat, relentless ego, is the enemy of the moral life. And each of us is the centre of our worlds. Inevitably, we can't not be. I mean, each baby, as it comes into consciousness of itself, is the centre of its world with its parents around it and things. And for me, I am, of course, the centre of my life. And on one particular afternoon, I come down here and I see all of you, very, very nice indeed, but, you know, you'll just drift away into wherever it is you go and my life will carry on. For you, for each of you, you're living your own life in the middle and I'm just this random person that comes one afternoon, talks about Iris Murdoch, and then drifts away and you never know anything about. It's like we've got this sort of, almost like a planetary system. We're each our own sun, and around us closely go our family and our dearly loved ones, and then perhaps outside that some friends, and then some acquaintances, and then maybe just the sort of vague student body that you live amongst or whatever. And then there's more people out there. And eventually, of course, you end up to sort of the starving masses somewhere that you really feel badly about but you don't know how to help but you know they're sort of out there on the periphery of your solar system as it were but for everybody that's the case and it's actually realising that the other person is as much the sun in their world as you are in your world and paying attention to their reality that breaks that kind of egoism does that make any sense at all Perfectly. That, that, is, that is her central, central point really and she shows her characters and I'll stop talking in a minute and let you come back to the bell miles, because she shows her characters <laughs> fighting this, doesn't she? Yes, absolutely. And, and being caught by it and being put in moral dilemmas because of it. So that's a sort of a rough overview of what sort of things Ben mm. was concerned with. Yes, absolutely. But not in the sense that you'd know that that was the sort of... The, if you're just reading this as a brand new reader to her work, you'd see these as a well-told narrative, wouldn't you? You... Would, you these ideas are implicit within her work, pervade her work so much. But she's certainly in this novel, I think in other novels it's more obvious that that's what's happening. But I think in this novel, her fourth novel, it's so well subsumed within the story that's driving it. About this young woman who, as, as you know, got, got married, leaves her husband because she's afraid, and then, and then has to go, and then has to go back. Noel is not the right place for her either. But it's also about her, about Dora, coming to her own awareness of her selfhood. 
but also partly her own awareness of um, herself in relationship to others. And at the end of the novel, of course, it's the, the dispersal, I'm sure we'll talk about the end of the novel later, this dispersal of character brings a kind of, brings a freedom as well, bring, brings a freedom. This idea that there are options after the, um, the dissolution of, of, this, of this community. So I think it's um, perhaps something to keep in mind, but when you first read a novel, or even if, if you go on and read others, perhaps you'll have these idea, ideas in your mind, but the, the first thing, the, 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 the aesthetic nature of, this, of the prose that comes through, I think is marvellous. Mm. Absolutely. When I started reading her at 13, I, mean, I didn't even know I was going to do English at university or anything then. I was just reading her because she was a brilliant storyteller. I just loved the stories. I mean, more or less, not quite went from Enid Blyton to Iris Murdoch, but more or less. You know, it, was, it was the same progression. I just loved reading the stories. Certainly wasn't thinking about philosophy. And I think she'd been quite cross with Miles, actually, because he called his book on her Iris Murdoch philosophical novelist, and she didn't like being called that. She thought it was um, a limiting thing. She saw somebody like Jean Sartre as a, a philosophical novelist, and she felt that his books were there to express his ideas, and his characters had to act in certain ways to show his philosophical ideas, and there were sort of pegs to hang that on. And she thought that's not literature. And philosophy, philosophy will inevitably come into her novels because that's her moral vision, so she can't leave it out altogether. But she doesn't want it to be an exercise in moving, I suppose, chessmen around the chessboard yeah, sure. to make a, make a point where she feels that the French novelists de Beauvoir as well mm -hmm. rather did. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it is a provocative title, sure. I think I'm a little bit more, I hope I'm a little bit more nuanced than that. <laughs> but that's just banging on about it. But cer certainly, you know, if, when, when you write in that, when you're writing 80,000, 90,000 words for a PhD, you've got to have an angle, haven't you? Mm. And my angle was to take on, I suppose, not just Murdoch, but also some, some of her very well-known and very well-respected critics and say, actually, this is how philosophy is working within, whether it's the my chapter on the belt. Well, it, about it was very justifiable, actually, because Murdoch had a, quite a stranglehold on her critics. She was a lovely woman. Everybody adored her. And if she said, and she, and she also had a very sort of sage, like she had a deep voice and a very sage-like delivery and a very serene kind of persona. And she would deliver her remarks with gravitas. And you felt you couldn't argue with her, really. So when she said, no, I am not a philosophical novelist, they all went, oh, righto. And, and Miles quite rightly was saying, well, hang on a minute. Is she necessarily the best interpreter of her own work? Are there ways in which we could say, if there is a tradition, the philosophical novel, and, and you explore what that might be, how do her works relate to this? Do they fit into it? Do they not? And it, it is much more nuanced. But I was just amused that you chose that as a title when she firmly said, I am not one. <laughs> Provocative. It, it sold copies. Actually, mm. that that was one thing. It did. It, it sold. It sold some copies, which was nice, um, and got some interesting reviews. Um, but let's let's let, let's think about how these ideas. Should we think about how these ideas have played out within the novel themselves? Mm. Because there are certain literary devices, aren't there? There's certain characters, not exactly, not exactly two-dimensional, but they do fulfil a purpose. Certainly, there's a lot of doubles within it within the novel. Um, why don't we talk about that a little bit and then we'll think about her as a woman novelist and maybe think about her and Wolf and some, some, other, some other people. What, what, what would, we could think about the two bells, certainly. We could think about the two sermons. We could think about um, Imber and, and, the, uh, and the, enclosed, the enclosed space. We could talk, think about um, Imber Court and London and the movement between them. What, what do you think would be the one to really pick up on? Have a t take the next five minutes to sort of explore. Well, the two bells is fascinating, this double symbol of the old bell and the new, and you've got some ideas about how they relate in the movement of the old bell into the... I presume everybody has read this, and it's not puzzling you. 
because it's going to be difficult otherwise. Um, you've got this legend from the medieval bell, Gabriel, that it flew into the lake when the nun was faithless to her vows and disappeared. So that's gone, and they're bringing in this new bell to put back up in the steeple where the old bell had been. But meantime, they find the old bell in the lake and pull it out and try to do a switch. And then, of course, that falls into the lake as well, the new bell, and is eventually recovered and, and put on high very quietly by then. And the thing that was to be the sort of dramatic climax of this story, of the new bell being raised, happens behind closed doors in the end. It just vanishes mm. off, off, off scene, as it were. It happens off stage completely. You've got the twins. She often has twins in her books. Yes, yeah. Siblings and twins. Nick and Catherine Forley being almost sort of two sides of the same coin. Uh, that's quite a curious one. But the other thing that she looks at a lot, I think it's a Nietzschean idea of recurrence and repetition, mm -hmm. is repeated actions. Something about our personalities, our characters, very often leads us to repeat the same mistakes, to repeat the actions. And this is something that happens in a lot of her books in different ways. And here, of course, you've got Michael's story, the sad story of Michael and Nick when he was a schoolmaster and Nick was a pupil. That's in the past, decade back. It's sort of rearing its ugly head again. Nick's again on this liminal edge of the community and making Michael quite uncomfortable by his presence there. And then young, fresh Toby, little undergraduate about to be, comes in, all innocence and what have you, and the thing repeats again. And Michael, who thinks he's learned a lot, is put back in that position. Of, though I, I, must admit, I must have got older or something's changed in society. Because do you know what shocked me most this time, reading the bell? It was nothing to do with the sex. It was he was drink driving. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. he drank all that cider and then drove home. <laughs> it's something I think we're much tighter on Absolutely, now. Absolutely, but then of course, perfectly kind of. Yes, you know, just kind of. Oh, I'm all right to drive, really. <laughs> and he's got this boy asleep on his shoulder. I'm thinking, gosh, that just sounds so dangerous to me. But uh, absolutely, yeah. nobody done a health and safety audit on that community. <laughs> Certainly. It is, and it is, it's about this conflict, I think, within Michael between, you know, the, the reaching out towards a higher form of eros and towards some, some form of good, and I think that's well reflected in, within his sermon. And, 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 the, and the temptation that he feels, I mean, this idea, as you said quite rightly, that idea of, um, of repetition and recurrence and the constant drawing back. <coughs> Would we, do you think we ought to connect that to Michael's ego, or do you think it's more to do with this kind of, um, I don't know, it's more of a kind of a, an outside temptation. I think Michael's, the presentation of Michael is one of the most complex things in the book. She's writing in 58, and I'm not brilliant at the dates, I've got them here, but I don't want to be looking this up all the time. Just before the Wolfenden Report, I think that was actually 57, wasn't it? Homosexuality, or yeah. acts of homosexuality between consenting adults, consenting adults wasn't legalised properly in 64, was it? Yeah. So she's writing at a time when homosexual activity is imprisonable, it's punishable by law, it's, it is illegal, and it is frowned upon very much by the state, by the church. It's, it's seen as a sin, an absolute sin. And it's within living memory, I mean, it's not that long ago, totally. really. No. Yeah. And a little bit before that, you'd, you'd got policemen going undercover into public lavatories and enticing people and then arresting them. I mean, about a thousand homosexuals a year were arrested for cottaging, I think it was called. And you get this written about in, in other books as well, and of course increasing numbers of um, memoirs and um, autobiographies have come out of that period. Now, Quentin Crisp would probably be the 
most famous yep. of them all, The Naked Civil Servant, which is a marvellous book. I do recommend it. But Murdoch was bravely writing about homosexuality in a very low-key way, in many ways, as just a facet of life. Michael's just another of the people. She's not making it into a sort of central issue, but acknowledging that this was a problem and for many, many people. It was a, an area of their life, particularly if they were religious as well, that had them in a, a real double bind, and you've got the illegality. I think, however, that she complicates it slightly by the fact that Nick is only 14 or 15 at school and Michael is a schoolmaster, and Toby's probably 18, so technically now adult, but not in terms of the law then. No. It was 21 then. So again, you've got a minor. So you've got charges of um, abusive position of trust and, I suppose, effectively charges of paedophilic grooming. Coming in yeah, yeah, here. Yeah. So that's complicating it because it's not just about whether homosexuality is right or wrong and how that should change. It, it's got that extra layer in it. And the, I was totally sympathetic to Michael Mead. He is presented so sympathetically. Part of the thing is that a lot of the novel is told through his eyes. We never see it from Nick's point of view. We're told what Nick does. We're never let into Nick's mind to know what he's thinking at all. Whereas you get inside Michael's head a lot. And he's very sympathetically presented. It's a beautiful portrait of somebody in this kind of dilemma of his spirituality and his sexuality. It's a brave portrait at the time. And Pamela Osborne, who was here last week as well, said, but he's dreadful. He's absolutely dreadful. He's completely abused Nick. He's damaged Nick forever and what have you. He's, he's the fault of Nick's suicide. He could do the same to Toby if James hadn't sent him away. And when he goes off and teaches in the secondary modern school at the end of the novel, he's going to do the same thing over again because it's going to repeat again, which is arguable. Don't know, has Michael learned enough to change or not? Or is this going to happen again? And she has written the most extraordinary essay, which is published in the Mark Luprecht collection, based on the word hyacinthine. And it's only used twice in the novel about Nick's hair, which curls in black tendrils when he's a schoolboy. Hyacinthine tendrils. And she's basing it on the myth of Apollo and the young boy Hyacinth, that was the name. Who, and Apollo's love for him caused him to die. He was struck by a discus, I think, watching Apollo throwing it. But it was Apollo's love for this youth, this beautiful youth with the curling tendrily hair, that caused him to die. And when he died, the god said, right, his drops of blood will grow into these beautiful flowers, these hyacinth flowers with this curling tendril look. And Pamela thinks that Murdoch's use of this adjective relates it back to that myth and puts him in the position of the person who causes the death of the young man. And it's a very, very persuasive um, essay indeed, which really changed my mind about it quite a lot. And what she says in a wonderful, pithy sentence is it is a task for the reader not to be seduced by Michael's version of events. I think that bears a lot of thinking about. And you've always got the novelist controlling what's said, and she is choosing to say, tell it through his perspective. So she's offering the reader this work, this task, to question Michael's reliability, to question his version of events. I think that's uh, quite an important part of the... It's an important distinction. The action, sure. yes. Because usually, I think Michael is seen as one of the most sympathetic characters. Within, mm. within the we think of Mrs. Mark as being very 
concerned with rules and regulations. She's the, the, the prime character of the deontological in, in, in this. In this you know, we, we don't do that here, dear. We don't bring flowers. We don't. We don't. We don't bring nature in, into the in, into the community. I think that it's um, it's comedic as well as well as being quite worrisome. I think, and, and James is kind of on, on on that level as well. But but certainly, when I went and reread it again, can we can we trust some parts of this narration? And we usually don't think about that until we go later on to Murdoch's career, when we're thinking about something like the Black Prince, mm. where it's quite obvious mm. that um, the narration of Bradley Pearson is rather suspect. Mm. But it's interesting that we can now see it perhaps working in mm. perhaps its sort of form, formative stage within, mm. within the belt. Yeah. I think Mrs. Mark is an absolute um, miracle of comedy. Uh, Shakespeare mm. novels. She is so irritating. It's not just what she says, it's the way she says the words she uses. The sentences you can just imagine prickling with irritation if you had her anywhere near you somehow. It's, it's brilliantly done. Absolutely. Quite often, I suppose, we'd see Michael and James as kind of opposites and think about sort of uh, rule-based or consequentialist. Oh, is that the, is that, are the two sermons the key moments? I mean, for most readers coming to this book to begin with, it's those two sermons that we get within, within the community that are generally thought of as the kind of the prime ideas that, Mur that Murdoch's playing with it. Do you, is it that, or is it something more subtle like the, like the bell, or is it more about perhaps... Of course, he's already written on London, and she'll go back to write far more on London. But is it also are those as equally important kind of um, dualistic aspects? Do you think it's a false arcade, isn't it? It's a false pastoral, a pseudo pastoral. Yeah. This, this is there's that lovely um, famous quotation, which is said by the narrator, which again is where it's interesting who's telling it when you switch from the narration to being inside Michael's head or Dora's head, and the narrator that. The actual narrator comments in chapter six, those who hope by retiring from the world to earn a holiday from human frailty in themselves and others are usually disappointed. Mm. And you've got this, it's quite Shakespearean, isn't it? Mm. The retire from the hurly-burly of London and temptation and everyday life and everything. Get yourselves into this idyllic, beautiful, you know, Georgian place, a Palladian place in the countryside, which, of course, Noel spends in his article at the end, sets up beautifully of how they're inhabiting this gorgeous place with all these grounds and looking for funds to do so and totally smashes the whole thing. You don't get away from your demons, from what's... It all comes with you. The, the Strafford's marriage comes with them in whatever form. That's not very happy. Paul and Dora's marriage is with them. Michael's past is with him. James puzzles me. We're never inside his head, ever. He's always talked about from the outside. He has many noble qualities in Madochian terms. She's, she's a lot of time for soldiering. She sees the discipline of the army and of being a soldier. She sees it as a vocation, almost a spiritual vocation. And James is one of her characters who comes from this military background. And she has a lot of time as well for basic moral rules and, and for sticking to those and seeing those as giving a good framework. So in some ways, she's quite sympathetic to James's perspective. And yet James is so utterly, utterly lacking imagination. And just this week, rereading it, for the first time ever, I see James as at fault in places. When Nick tells Toby he's got to confess, he says, you've got to confess to the saint among us, James Taper Pace, indeed the only, the only available saint, indeed the only available man, James Taper Pace. Quite dismissive of everybody else. And yet, it's James 
that tells Michael to take Toby with him to go and get the cultivator. James is so unaware, has read Michael so little, has understood the signs so... Well, hasn't at all. It has never crossed his mind that this could ever be going to be a problem for Michael. He sends him off into this situation with this youth and sets up, effectively, the situation in which he drinks too much cider and kisses him. And the whole thing starts off again. And then, without any deliberate intent or whatever, Michael's about to go and see Nick. And James summons him. And Michael automatically does what James wants him to do and goes to see James instead of going to see Nick. Had he got to see... It's while they're talking that Nick shoots himself. And James interrupts that flow. And he's no time for Nick. He doesn't want him in the Abbey. He's going to be a troublemaker. He's a drunk. He's a wastrel. He's on the periphery. He's not religious. He's not going to pull his weight. And James is right. He doesn't pull his weight. He doesn't do anything useful, but mend the lorry. And he is difficult, and he's out on the periphery. He's making them all uncomfortable. And yet, surely, that's what they're there for, is to create a place for people who are not happy with themselves and not comfortable. And the abbess is worried about Nick. And James is just kind of... Write him off, basically. Don't, don't look at a person as damaged as that. He doesn't attend either. Yeah. And so I don't think he is a saint in the least bit. He doesn't see Michael clearly. He doesn't see Nick clearly. He doesn't actually want to. So I think he's got a very limited blinkered viewpoint. Do you think they're set up, set up as opposites? I think superficially they are. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think we are meant to see James as far less likeable. Uh, Certainly, my, when I first read this, this novel, so it, it was Michael that spoke to me as a character. Mm. And you think, well, actually, James is this strict, rules, soldiering kind of type and has got no time for the vagaries of human life, really. You know, he's, this is what he's known. He's bought his external life in soldiering in the outside world in, in try, and trying to force this kind of rule-based system upon this abbey um, within this community, whereas of course the rule-based system does quite work quite well within the Abbey, but it doesn't work very well within the community. And that's also another interesting development as well, isn't it? I think that so we haven't mentioned the Abbess yet, but what a, that's, that is the location of the saint, isn't it? Probably. She frightens okay. me. Is she? Yes. I, I'm always a bit uneasy about how much she knows about everybody. It's like there's a spy system going on somehow, and she's always informed about what everybody's doing and yet sort of hidden behind, and she won't listen to Michael at the point when Michael desperately needs to talk to her. And by the time she will listen to him, it's too late. Mm. I don't know what kind of controlling she's doing. I think Murdoch means it to be. Yes. The, um, the saint yeah. of goodness. Mm. Murdoch spent three periods of time at a place called Malling Abbey uh, with the nuns, which she found both comforting and challenging, both comfortable and discomforting, I think, in different ways. She writes about it in the letters sometimes. And she was fascinated by how people... She had a very great friend whose name originally was Lucy something unpronounceable. How do you say it? Klatchko. or something, yes, at Oxford. And she was a wild girl. And then she went into the um, convent and became Sister Marion. And Murdoch corresponded with her for the rest of their lives. That there, are, there are letters in the archive from Sister Marion. And... She was fascinated by this, but quite repelled as well by how people could shut themselves away from, from the world like that. But she did also see it as a fantastic spiritual powerhouse. And I think she saw the, the ambiguity, the potential for danger as well. And when Michael, uh, when it's suggested that Nick comes, Michael thinks 
In a case like Nick's, the proximity of storehouses of spiritual force was just as likely to provoke some new outrage as to effect a cure. And he's, he's quite aware there. Mm. Going back to James and what he knows. Yeah. I've said that James has no imagination and doesn't see what's happening with Michael and Nick and what have you at all. But I think there's a level at which James doesn't consciously know anything because he doesn't want to know about things like this because it's below his sort of moral threshold. You know, we behave decently, we behave properly, we are faithful in marriage, we are heterosexual, you know, we, we, we do things properly and that's how they should be. And that is the level at which he allows himself to think. And yet in his surname, sermon, he gives the examples, which are apparently random, of he's saying we just follow the rules, we don't choose for ourselves, but he picks out sodomy is forbidden, adultery is forbidden. Why pick them? I think there's a subconscious level at which James does know about Michael and possibly Nick, and does know that Dora is unfaithful. He doesn't want to know about this, and yet to pick out those things suggests that somewhere, seeping up through his subconscious to what he says, is awareness. Return of the repressed. Yes, yeah. yes, it probably is. Yeah. Yes. yes, definitely. But there's, there's also, there's, in contrast with that, there's moments of great beauty as well, aren't there? Mm. I'm thinking particularly of <coughs> the butterfly motif. And I hope you all picked up on that in your in your reading. The, 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 the cat, and I think this is why Dora works so well as a character, is her sort of, in a sense, her willingness to sort of disregard the rules, not just around sort of sexual morality, but also about her attention to nature. And obviously, we see it mirrored there, in, mirrored in the in the game when she goes when she goes back to London. And, and sees these two young children chasing the butterfly in that wonderful picture. Do you think we, we, all, we probably ought to speak a little bit about the butterfly, I think? That's yes. yes. Central it's, it's, it's just so marvellous. Paul ends that chapter when she arrives at the station. He says, you are full of surprises. He doesn't say it nicely. It's not appreciative. <laughs> it's very <laughs> ironic that you are full yeah. of surprises. After she's left his case with his notebooks and his hat on the train and everything, and she opens her hands, and there's a butterfly. And it's, it's, it's cinematic. I mean, if you're going to make a, a film of the bell, this girl arriving on the platform and opening her hands, and out comes the bell. I came by train here today for the first time ever. I didn't find a butterfly on the floor, which was a shame. I was hoping to sort of arrive with butterfly. And... Um, if you've got this handout, I've put a very, very, very bad picture. I, I wish I'd thought to send you it, because I've got it, that we could put it up. We can put it up for the next part of the session. Yeah. Going um, to the National Gallery to see this, we've taken a lot of groups of students there. It's, it's a fantastic painting. These faces are of innocence. They're very young girls, and yet the older girl is trembling on the edge of awareness. She is more afraid. The, the young girl is reaching out her hand towards the butterfly. The older girl is trying to protect her because behind the butterfly is a thistle. If she touches the butterfly, she will prick herself, she will wound herself. And the older girl is beginning to know that stretching out towards beauty or something you want, there's pain, there's, there's danger. It's fascinating. We, we've got a lovely... Um, Art historian there, Claire Cooper, takes us around and she's really eloquent about this painting. Anne and I have had fascinating time with her. But she, Claire Cooper, this is, took a group of quite small um, school children around to see the paintings. And she asked them, obviously she didn't give them too much art historical detail, but she asked them what they thought of it. And one of the children, who was only about seven or eight, 
said that the two girls are in the shape of a butterfly, and you probably can't see it from this little one, but if you look at the painting and you half close your eyes, you've actually, with the two dresses, got a kind of butterfly's wings. And it's this painting that Dora stops in front of. She looks at lots of them, and it's a marvellous epiphanic moment in the National Gallery that she's gone to these paintings, which for her have religious significance. They're like shrines, shrines of beauty, shrines of goodness something absolutely pure outside herself that can't be spoiled by her messy life and messy head and everything. But it's this painting Murdoch chooses to use. She uses different paintings in different novels. Dora's given this one, which is the painter's daughter's chasing a butterfly and has this butterfly shape in it. And it associates Dora very firmly with the butterfly, and I think, therefore, quite a lot with innocence as well. Yes. There's nothing manipulative about Dora. She's ingenuous. She, she, she's impulsive and random, and, and she's so wonderfully sort of one thing one moment one the next and indecisive and she's not going to give up her seat to this woman and then she stands up and would you like my seat and she's not going to do this and then she does it she's she's an absolute sort of creature of nature really she just acts from impulse all the way through and she has to learn that her impulses aren't always good and can be harmful as the impulse to marry Paul just because he was sort of quite good looking and older and she was a bit flattered and all the rest of it and he had a nice flat in Knightsbridge it was not a good thing to base a marriage on it wasn't a good impulse just to run away to Noel and she goes back and forth like this all the time and she hurts Noel she impulsively goes to see him he welcomes her he dances with her he gives her a bath and gin and goes out to get wine to have a lovely meal and what have you when, when she comes back with the wine she's off again and she's quite and that has a knock-on effect Later on, she tells Noel about Imber, so he knows about it, and by the time he gets there, he's really pretty pissed off with her, and he's not going to go away and keep quiet. So that all these things have a sort of knock-on effect, but nothing Dora does is out of um, no. egocentric malice no. or manipulation. It's not deliberate. Her, her, her only piece of manipulation is so overt as to be sort of vast. I will change the bells round, I will play the holy witch, and I will do this extraordinary thing of actually making this mechanical movement, which of course she can't do without Toby. I mean, she just watches him as he witches the bell out of the lake and is useless. But it's an absolute piece of... And as soon as she realises what she's done, this absolute instinct of truth comes again, and she stands there ringing this bell to let all come, and she, she's out in the open. There's something very open about Dora, which I think we warm to, really. Um, she hasn't got that manipulative feeling that Paul has, or Michael, really, even, mm. I think. Very ingenuous. Yes. Yes. And I think that's what we tie, in, that's what we tie into. To sort of con um, conclude our, our talk, because we're, you know, we're getting to a little bit closer time, how would we, would we, Murdoch says she's not a feminist, I don't think, would, would she want to be placed in a, in a women's writing course? Um, I mean, you know, we know now that she had um, sort of uh, confusion exactly, but she, um, throughout her life, was developing her own awareness of gender and sexuality, and that comes through very much in some of her letters. Well, do you think she'd be flattered to be on a course with Virginia Woolf, or, I mean, she didn't particularly like Virginia Woolf, did she? <laughs> She was frightened of Virginia Woolf, I think, until the end, and then I think she made terms with her in the book of the Brotherhood, mm. really. No, she didn't like women writers being hived off at all. She thought women should just join the human race, which uh, presumably means that the human race is male, and um, women should just get more like that. It's, it's, a, it's a very vexed question, because there's her personal private life, 
which was quite fluid gender-wise and quite complex with her relationships and things. And then she was how she wanted to be seen as a writer and as an intellectual public figure, which was very much as a man, really. Yes. Um, she, she's in the book called Men of Ideas by Brian McGee, and she's the only woman in the book called Men of Ideas. And there's another place, I forget now, it's, it's in that book where she is um, put into a male context. And there's an amazing photograph in the archive of her at a conference in Canada. There's about 20 besuited male philosophers and the Zara's Murdoch in the middle of it. And I think in some ways this may have been why she ended up feeling such a masculine mind as she so often was the only woman. Not a token woman because she earned the place as did Mary Warnock, Mary Midgley, Philippa Foote and Elizabeth Anscombe. There was this incredible generation of women philosophers in that particular time which I don't think we've seen since in, in such a concentration either. These women who were very powerful. But no, she... She thought feminism was sort of um, special pleading, that it was being... There was nothing special about being a woman, just being human was it. Uh, that's a whole huge area, really. Yeah. But it's interesting what seeps through, and certainly Dora is the one who survives the experience. She learns to swim. That's always incredibly significant in Murdoch's novel. She can't swim at the beginning, and she, she learns by the end. And that ability to be free in the water, not to be afraid... It's, it's partly a spiritual development as well in, in Murdoch's novels, being free in water. And she learns to like classical music. And she's, she is in charge at the end. She's living this lovely, only for a few weeks, but peaceful life. The flowers have come into Imber that Mrs. Mark wouldn't let in. The roses are there on the tables, dropping their petals. She's making meals. She's pulling the table out into the sunshine. There's a feeling of peace and harmony that she creates for a while there. And there's a real sense of hope that Dora will go on into a positive future, much more so than with Michael. Toby's all right, too. He's gone off to Oxford. He's recovered. He's going to be okay. Michael, I think, is going in for more trouble further down the line. Not necessarily going to have a happy life. Yeah. Whereas Toby, uh, Dora, I think, yes, she's finally... She has actually worked something through. She's got herself into a really new position, and she will have a, a brighter future ahead. Yeah. Absolutely.